Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. Uh, I am one of the leaders here, and we're going to continue our walk through the book of Ephesians this morning. Before we do, um, a couple items of just kind of general nature announcements. Um, we do quite a bit of work in our community, really through our community groups. Um, our community groups lo uh, move out in, in loving and knowing their neighbors and in serving their community and in plugging in. Um, but we do have occasionally these all-call events where we just basically come together as a church and we do these events as a whole body. And there's a couple of those coming up that I want you to be aware of um, because we would love to have you participate and join in those with us. On October 7th, um, which is just about three weeks away, I guess, we're going to be hosting um, a barbecue for students over at SIUE. We're going to be doing it in Cougar Village. This is a great way to give them free food, which they always appreciate. Um, but it also allows us to get, just to get to know people uh, and move into relationship with people because um, there's often wide open doors of service. There's just ways for us to meet people and to serve people and uh, to share with them very practical love of Christ um, through that. And so we would invite you to join us in that. We need a lot of work. Obviously, there's setup and teardown, and there's cooking, and there's eating, and lots of other stuff, uh, and we want you to join us. There's a sign-up out at the end of the coffee bar um, if you want to get more information about that. The second thing I want to highlight is that on December 8th, we're going to be hosting what we call our Affordable Christmas. Affordable Christmas is an event that we put together for families that um, are struggling to be able to afford um, a Christmas for their family. And this is a way for us to partner with them, to give them a way to um, shop for their family, to actually buy the gifts and um, at a drastically reduced price. It's our way of basically coming alongside them and um, with dignity and honor, helping them have a great Christmas experience. And so we have uh, um, a tremendous amount of work that goes into this event because we gather tons of donations, um, we price them, and um, we have personal shoppers that walk around with um, the people that we've invited to the event. There's a ton of work that goes into this. Um, it's a lot of fun, I'll tell you that. It's a tremendous amount of fun to actually work it and, and work with people to serve people. Um, get involved, I want to let you know. It's coming up on December 8th, and, and if you go to Connection Point, we'll give you information about how you can be involved, how you can plug in. If you're already in one of our community groups, you will be serving at that because um, that's one of those all-call events where our community groups come together, and as a body, we serve. Now, speaking of community groups, um, I want to just throw one final plug out there. We're kind of at the end. We're, we're encouraging people to sign up for community groups. If you've been coming to Trailhead, um, you enjoy the gathering, um, that's awesome. But real-life transformation takes place best in small groups. And so I want to encourage you to think about joining one of our community groups. These are groups of people that are just 
doing life together. I mean, it's, it's simple as that. I mean, it's getting to know people and learning how to walk in faith together and encourage each other. Our joys become more joyful. Our pain becomes more bearable. Why? Because we're in community. We have people around us. And as community, we, we move out on mission. We get to know our neighbors. We serve our community. We, we find needs and meet them. It's just a way to, to live in the faith of what we're talking about because church is not a place you go to. Church is something you are. If you're a follower of Christ, you are the church. You're the body of Christ. And, and you need to be involved living this out and not just going to an event, right? We're not here to, to fill your spiritual gas tank so you can get through another week. That, that is not a biblical model. We are here to call you to the gospel and, and in that process, encourage you to get involved in in, in life with other believers because that's the way God designed it to be. So I want you to think about doing that. Um, if you need, if you've been wanting to do it, now's a great opportunity. If you haven't been wanting to do it, you really do want to do it, okay? So I'm just telling you, you should go out there, okay? Because um, it's important and you want to do it, okay? If you're shy, don't worry. There will be other shy people in the group. You can have a shy club together and you can, you're going to be fine, okay? You're going to be fine. Uh, in fact, more than fine, it's going to be a blessing to you. So, so step out. Okay, let's do this thing. Join our community groups and, um, and, and just jump into life with us, okay? All right, so those are the, the housekeeping items that I wanted to hit. This morning, we're going back into Ephesians 1. We're in the third week of our series, moving through chapter 1 of Ephesians. Week 1, we just looked at the introduction and basically looked at the big idea, very simply, that God takes sinners and turns them into saints. Revolutionary, crazy idea that the God of the universe takes sinners and turns them into saints, um, Paul was an example of that. The Ephesians were an example of that. We're an example of that. And at the end of that um, introduction, um, Paul basically says, grace and peace to you. And we talked about that. That's just loaded with theological meaning because it's through grace that we enter back into peace, into shalom with God. Um, and just to hit that, <laughs> shalom is so critically important. Shalom is not just when we talk about shalom, we're talking about the peace of God, this theological concept that we are, in fact, created to be at peace with God and with one another. We're talking about a lot more than just a lack of conflict. When we talk about the shalom of God, we're talking about the harmony of all things, everything being where it's supposed to be, everything having the purpose it was supposed to have. And I would propose to you that everybody, everybody, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, is pursuing shalom. That's why you do anything you do. Everything you do in life is an attempt to regain and experience shalom, balance, peace, wholeness, purpose, all the things that come at being, being in balance, right? Whether it's getting a job or pursuing a, a relationship or trying to get more money or trying to get that, finally get that car, whatever it is that you're chasing down. And, the, and of course, the story of our lives is that we're continually looking to things to give us the shalom of God, and they can't, right? They're like shadows of the reality, they're like appetizers for the real meal. They, they never actually fulfill. And so we spend our lives just going from one thing to the next to the next, ultimately trying to get what only God can give. And the message of the gospel is that God's in the business of restoring us to the source of life, taking sinners, making them saints, which essentially means His way of, of taking people that are broken, separated from the shalom of God, and restoring them into right relationship with Himself so that they can, in fact... Um, experience what they're created to experience. That's great news. Last week, we looked at, at the beginning of that plan, and we talked about how verses 3 through 14, that whole section, is one sentence. <laughs> it's one big idea that we're breaking down thought by thought to understand it. Last week, we looked at the first couple of verses to look at the role of the Father in this plan, and the role of the Father is essentially to be sovereign. He is God, and as God, He acts as God. 
right? Um, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. He's God. He is God, and He has purposed and planned to bless us for a very, very long time. That's the essence of it, okay? And we talked about how since He is sovereign, He does, in fact, choose. He, he is the one that decrees all things, right? But we can't know what He's decreed until after we experience it, which means that we have a continual, wide-open invitation to grace, right? God is sovereign, and in His sovereignty, He has opened up the door for grace. So the question always before us is, will we believe the gospel and enter into the grace that He has offered to us? In His sovereignty, as He has chosen to bless, He also took to Himself the price of blessing, when he chose us, he committed himself to making it possible, right? Because we were sinners. In order to make us saints, there was something that had to be done, and it was a price to be paid, and it was an incredible price that ultimately only he could pay. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning um, in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Who's him? The beloved, the one in the previous verse, the Son of God, in whom all of God's delight rests, Jesus, okay? In him... We have redemption. Now, this word redemption is, is loaded theologically. If you, if you were to read this in the first century, you would definitely um, go back to one of the greatest examples of redemption in the Bible. And in fact, um, uh, most people who had been trained at this time to, to understand um, God through Judaism or other would automatically go to that story. What happened in that story? Let me just give you a brief rundown. What happened was the nation of Israel um, went to Egypt during a time of famine. God provided for them miraculously in Egypt, and, and they had a great relationship. The problem was God prospered them. They grew numerically. They grew in prosperity and became threatening to the Egyptians. As a result, the Egyptians actually enslaved them, um, and Pharaoh used them ultimately as his machine to build his kingdom. Um, they were in slavery for about 400 years, um, and then God basically said it's time to deliver. And so he sent Moses, and Moses went to Pharaoh and basically said, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. So God sent 10 plagues into the nation of Egypt. Those 10 plagues were specifically targeted toward 10 Egyptian deities, 10 things that the Egyptians worshipped and thought were going to give them what only God could give. And, and this was God's way of basically saying, you guys, what you're worshipping can't protect you, can't provide for you, will not give you what you're hoping to get. And every time he judged one of those false gods, he also offered an invitation. Each time Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not respond. The 10th um, judgment came in, the 10th plague. And, and the 10th plague was the sending of the angel of death. And the angel of death came into the, the, the nation of Egypt and killed all the firstborn. All the firstborn people, all the firstborn animals. It was devastating devastating, especially to Pharaoh because it hit at the heart of his chief idolatry. He thought he was God, and he thought his son was next in line to deity. And so the angel of death was sent in, but God gave a way out. God basically told the Israelites, hey, the angel of death is coming in, but, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to, to take an unblemished lamb. I want you to kill it. I want you to take its blood and put it on your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes that night through Egypt, if he sees the blood on your doorpost, he will pass over your home, and no judgment will be visited to your family. And that event became memorialized 
through what we call the Passover feast. Every year, the nation of Israel had this incredibly huge party celebrating the Passover. And they would get together and they would basically uh, reenact the meal, that last meal they had that night. Um, and, um, and, and, and in it, they would celebrate the fact that God had passed over them, that God had visited judgment, but had passed over them because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, you guys, God is a great storyteller. And one of the things that He does is, is flat out amazing is that he tells his story through all of these little stories. He takes all of these individual strands of stories and weaves them together into one great story. When we look at the Passover lamb, what we're seeing is a foreshadowing of the great Passover lamb, the true and better Passover lamb, the beloved, Jesus. You know, Jesus shared his last meal with his disciples. Um, what we celebrate in communion, that was the Passover meal. He was in Jerusalem during the Passover, and they were, in fact, celebrating the fact that, that God had passed over them in judgment because of the blood that had been put on their doorposts. And he looked at his disciples and basically said, this meal is about me. This bread represents my broken body. This cup represents my spilt blood. What he was saying to them was the Passover lamb was just a symbol of me. I will redeem you. I will buy you out of your slavery but I'm not just going to deliver you temporarily like the nation of Israel. I'm going to deliver you permanently because you're not going to be delivered simply by the blood of an animal. You're going to be delivered by the blood of the perfect sacrifice through His blood. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, and He purchased our redemption through His blood. At the heart of Christianity is the shedding of blood, and that, that is a hard and sometimes um, potentially offensive thing to modern ears. But what it does is it basically um, speaks to the judgment we deserved. You guys, we were guilty of cosmic treason. I just want you to think about that for a minute. We were, um, both by birth and choice, guilty of cosmic treason. When, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God looked at them and basically said, in the day that you commit treason against me. In the day, you decide to become the center of the universe instead of me. In the day, you decide you want to worship yourself instead of worshiping me. In the day, you decide that you need to obey yourself over obeying me. In that day that you commit treason, you will die. You will die. And when they ate from the tree, they died. Now, they didn't die physically right away, but they died spiritually immediately. Because death isn't ceasing to exist. Death is separation. In that moment, when they rebelled against God... They were separated from the presence of God. They were separated from the shalom of God, the life-giving peace of God. They were immediately judged in separation, and that followed later in physical death, where their souls were separated from their bodies. And if God hadn't intervened, it would have resulted in what the Bible calls the second death, which is the eternal separation of the soul from the shalom of God. There is no more horrific end to human existence than that. Eternally being separated from the very thing you were created to enjoy. Eternally pursuing what you can never attain. It's a horrific end. But it was, in fact, the judgment that was fit to the crime. It was the punishment that was suited to the offense and in a supreme act of love, God substituted Himself in our place. In a supreme act of mercy, 
He became our substitute in judgment so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be delivered from the consequence of our offense. Literally, it means that we were redeemed for the forgiveness of sins. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The text makes it incredibly clear. We're not just generally redeemed. We are redeemed in a very specific way. The death of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the shedding of His blood equals the forgiveness of sins. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. This is a total, radical, complete absolution. When you're forgiven for your sins by the work of Christ, how forgiven are you? Absolute. Absolute. We are talking about complete freedom from the legal, moral, cosmic consequences of our rebellion against God. Complete deliverance. In fact, we see that right there in the text. When, when Paul starts out, he says, um, in him we have redemption. It doesn't say we will have. It doesn't say we might have if we perform well enough, if we're religious enough, if we have enough self-discipline. It says we have redemption. It is a present possession. It is a present holding, a gift from God, not based on our performance for Him, but based on His performance in our place. We have redemption, complete, total, absolute absolution from the guilt of our sin. I want you to think about this for a minute because this is profound. Uh, You ever dealt with debt? Some of you have been around long enough that you know what that feels like. Uh, if you have debt that's following you around all the time, it kind of feels like a weight, doesn't it? Like, like every time you take a step, you're just dragging it along with you, right? It's like your own personal rain cloud, right? Every time the sun comes out, it just follows you everywhere you go. Like you get a little bit of extra money and you're like, oh yeah, I got extra. Oh, that's not for me. I got to send that to that guy because I owe it to him. Hmm. I already spent this money. That's a bummer. You know, I mean, that's the way debt is, man. It's like this continual downer. It's this continual sense of, of something just pulling you down of dragging you back into this pit, right? Some of you know that, and, and it's, 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 uh, it's nasty. Um, Esther likes to watch Ellen DeGeneres. Um, sorry, S, if you didn't want to share that. Um, but she enjoys watching Ellen DeGeneres after school. Ellen's hilarious, you guys. I'm sorry, but she is funny. Sometimes I office at home, so I'm working, and she'll turn it on, and, and I'll just watch it, and she cracks me up. But she does this really cool thing. Sometimes she will have guests on whose lives are like a mess, right? Like they, people write to her stories of, of how broken and hurt their lives are and how they're in this trouble. And, and she just does cool stuff. And so, so, you know, she had this family on and, and, and dad had been in the military and away from home and they had run into all these crises at the house and they were in financial trouble. The car was breaking down. Dad couldn't take a second job to pay for more money. She couldn't go to a job. She had kids, all this stuff. I mean, just the weight of it, right? And we we're listening to her tell her story and we're like, man, I know that feeling. I know what it's like to have that kind of weight. I know what it's like to be in a spot, man, where it's maybe yours is a little bit worse than mine right now, or maybe it's not as bad as mine either way, right? And then Ellen does this really cool thing, right? She brings out this check, right? And it's usually like eight feet long and huge, and it's got like Maybelline written across the top, like some corporate sponsor. I would love to see them actually carrying that into a bank, right? I mean, it's just this monster thing, and it's like, here's the exact amount that you owe, right? And we're like, yeah, 
that's awesome. Like tears coming down. That's great. And then she goes to the, like, the artist and the music plays and, and they're wrapping up. And she's like, oh, by the way, we got one more thing, right? And they pull up this curtain and there's a brand new car, right? And we're like, yeah, that's even better, right? We love it. Why? Because we know what that's like. We know what it's like to owe when we can't pay. We know what it's like to be in a hole that we can't climb out of. And we love the story of deliverance. We love it when someone steps in and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, you guys, money debt is bad enough. But think about when it like, comes to people. You ever been in debt to a person? I'm not talking financially. You know what we call that when you're in debt to a person? We call that guilt. When you've done something wrong, when you've said something stupid, when you've acted insensitively, when you did something very selfish at the price of somebody else, and in the moment you weren't thinking about the consequences, but you walk in relationship with that person, and every time you, you see them, what do you feel? You feel the weight of your debt. You feel the guilt. And so you, you try and make it up, right? You try and pay it back. We buy them presents, we do nice things for them, we say nice things, and we're eventually like, come on, man, can, we, can I just make this right? What we're saying is, I owe you a debt that I don't know how to fix. I owe you a debt I don't know how to pay back. And if we can't pay it back, if that debt stays there, what do we eventually do? We kill the relationship. We separate ourselves from the person that we feel that weight from because the weight is crushing it is overwhelming, and we would rather see the death of the relationship than have to bear the weight of that load. That's what debt is, you guys. It is a weight that crushes us, that ultimately drags us to a place we don't want to go, but we're helpless to ultimately stop it from taking us there. I want you to feel the weight of this, you guys. Every person in this room is a cosmic traitor. Every person in this room was born a traitor and has acted as a traitor against God. We owe God a debt that we cannot pay. And you're like, dude, I'm not really that bad. I hear you, but I'm not that bad. Well, compared to who? Who are you comparing yourself to? Right? Maybe you're not that bad compared to that jerk at work, but how are you compared to Jesus? Let's just throw that out there. Since he's kind of the measuring rod, how, how are you doing there? You, are you as merciful as Jesus? Are you as truthful as Jesus? Are you as courageous as Jesus? Are you as self-sacrificial as Jesus? <laughs> you fall pretty fall short when you set the bar at the right level, right? Here's the deal. We're constantly trying to prove to ourselves that we're not as bad as we are. Some of you are like, Steve, I, I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm better than... Um, think about it this way, and some of you have heard me use this illustration before, and I, and I use it because I want to drive home this very simple point, that we all are continually trying to put ourselves at the center and replace God. We're all committing cosmic treason all the time. If you walk down a street and you see a field, and it's this beautiful green grass, and there's a sign on it that says, do not walk on the grass, what do you want to do? There's going to be one of two answers here. Some of you are like, I will immediately walk on that grass. If you put up a sign that says, don't walk on that grass, my immediate thought is, what's so great about that grass that you're telling me I can't be on it? Why is that grass so good? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk on it. I'm going to take my shoes off. I'm going to put my feet in it. I'm going to lay in it. You're going to tell me I can't have it? That's the very thing I want. You know what's behind that? Is you think God's a cosmic killjoy. 
And you think all rules are designed to keep you from things that are ultimately going to give you what you want, the shalom of God. So you break the rules trying to get what you feel like you don't have. And you feel like you don't have it because you feel like it's been forbidden to you by this cosmic killjoy. Wrong perspective, huh. but it explains the behavior. I'm a rule breaker by nature. I'm just, I'm the younger brother. I'm the, I'm the one that's going to... There are others though. <laughs> there are rule keepers. When you see the do not walk on the grass sign, you're going to walk five miles out of your way not to step on that grass. Why? Because you feel good about yourself when you keep the rules. I measure up. I keep things in control. I don't break rules, right? You walk five miles out of the way, you get to the other side of the field, you look out there and see me laying in the grass and you're like, what a sinner. Where's the police? Give him a ticket, right? I mean, you're like, judge that man because you feel so incredibly self-righteous in your obedience. What I want you to see is both the rule keeper and the rule breaker are ultimately trying to do for themselves what only God can do. Establish the peace of God. And you know if you're a rule keeper, you never keep them good enough, do you? You're like on the roller coaster of self-approval. Like when you're doing better than the people around you, you start feeling really good about yourself. You start feeling judgmental about people. You're feeling, well, people could just live their lives like me. We'd all be good, right? But then you fall short in some critical way, man. You're plunging back into the depths because you can never keep the rules good enough. And those of you who are rule breakers, you know the same thing, man. You're pursuing pleasure and, and you break the rules and you get into it and you're like, oh, this is wonderful, man. This is great. Yeah, until the next morning. And you're like, oh my goodness, what did I do? Until you actually see the consequences of the choices you've made. Here's the deal. We're both trying to get what only God can give in ways that he doesn't give it because we're basically saying, God, give me the blessing of shalom without relationship with you. Make me the center, not you. We're cosmic traitors. We are continually spitting in the face of God, saying to him, we want your blessings, but we don't want you. We want the good things you give, but we don't want your presence. You created us in your image. You created us in love. You created us to experience the overflow of all that is wonderful about you, and we don't want it. You want to talk about guilt? You want to talk about debt? It's really bad when you're in debt to God. Because you owe God a debt you can never pay. You are guilty of a crime you can never fix. You are bearing a guilt that you can never bridge. You guys, when the true unfiltered light of God's holiness shines on us, how are we going to look? When we can't Photoshop our image to make ourselves look better on Facebook? Can't change the angle, change the lighting? We can't hide behind the way we spin our behavior? When we are on display as we actually are, that is going to be a horrific day because we will stand before the holy God of the universe condemned, separated, bearing the guilt of our rebellion. That's a horrific day, not a good day. There will be no self-deception, no self-justification there. It will be absolute truth. But God, being rich in mercy, in love, sent his son to redeem us, to pay the debt we couldn't pay, to bridge the gap we couldn't bridge. He became our substitute. 
He bore the, the judgment we deserved. He suffered the death we earned. The Holy One of God was separated from the presence of God. He was made sin, and He suffered the eternal wrath of a holy God in our place as our substitute. And He drank that cup to the dregs. He emptied that cup. And when the judgment was complete, He rose again in new life, not just for himself, but for us. He took the hit and he offers us grace. He offers us grace, you guys. That's what the verse says. This is all according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. This is God's plan. This is God's hero. And in God's plan, he wants to lavish the riches of his grace upon us. You guys, only when we understand the extent of our debt can we really come to appreciate the scope of His mercy? His grace has paid our greatest debt. His grace has solved our greatest problem. And there's no end to His grace. He takes the riches of His grace and He lavishes them upon us. This is nuts. <laughs> this is nuts. You know, like, like Ellen, wonderful, wonderful, right? But what does she do? She pays enough to pay the debt. She gives you a new car. That's great. Ten years down the line, it's broken down. It needs to be replaced too. There's an end to her generosity. I mean, it's a wonderful act. But it doesn't fix things, not forever, not permanently, temporarily. God's grace? Eternal. The riches of God's grace? Never ending. This gift never runs out. It never expires. You never get to the end of that bank account. You never get to the end of that gift. It is an overwhelming, never-ending position of favor with God. That's what He offers. Romans 5.1 says, those who have been justified by faith. In other words, those who have been declared right by God because they believed in Jesus. Stand in grace. Stand in grace. What that means is those who believe in Jesus stand before God with the ever-flowing shower of grace that never stops. Wherever you move, wherever you go, how often you move, you're in grace. You cannot find the end of grace. You cannot step outside of grace. You cannot lose. It is there, a positional thing before God. This is insane from our perspective. I mean, think about it. If a human court did this, what, what would we think about that? If somebody came before the court and they were guilty of murder and the judge looked at them and said, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. And not only that, I give you a pardon for anything else you'll ever do. I pardon you for what you've done. And I give you a pardon for anything else you'll ever do. <laughs> How does that make sense? That's like stupid, like crazy. We look at that and we're like, that, that's not right. That's not responsible. I mean, that's downright un-American. How can you give away something so valuable? You don't give away things that are valuable. You sell them or invest them or do something with them. You don't just give them away, right? How can you give away? Is there anything more valuable than the grace of God? Anything in the universe more valuable than the grace of God? 
Anyone? No, I'd rather have gold. Yeah, all right, great, good for you. <laughs> a lot of good that's going to do you in about 100 years. The grace of God is the most valuable thing that could ever be given to us. <laughs> and it's radically free. Radically free. And we're like, you just can't do that, God. You can't give away grace. You know why? We get like freaked out. This is what religious people do. They get all freaked out when they hear a message like this because they're like, you can't do that, right? Tell people that they're saved by grace, but you know what? You better give them religion because if you just tell them it's free and they have an unending pardon, they're going to become incredibly irresponsible. They're just going to sin. <laughs> you know why? Because they have an unending pardon. Why not? If you have an unending pardon, why not just keep sinning? Keep doing all those things that you were already doing, right? People are just going to enlist for cosmic welfare. And they're just going to get lazier and fatter. They're going to live off the dole of God's grace. It seems insanely irresponsible. But you guys, it's not. You know why? Because He lavished His grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is part of God's plan. He has a plan that, while it doesn't make sense to us, at least not at first, it's incredibly wise. Incredibly wise. And here's why, you guys. This is the way He designed it. The same grace that pardons us changes us. The same grace that frees us from the consequences of our sins and our guilt and all of our errors transforms us. See, religion says, work harder, try better. Read your Bible more, you know? Go to church more. Obey more. Become more moral. Do all these things. And then God will like you more. Or, or maybe He'll just keep liking you, right? You'll, you, you're, you won't risk losing His, his favor, right? And this is so subtle. Don't we do this all the time? Things are going, like, falling apart around our ears. And we're like, oh, man, i got to get my life together. What do we mean when we say that? You know what we mean, generally, is we better start performing better. I better start having my quiet time with God. <laughs> As if God's, like, really impressed by your quiet time with Him. <laughs> you know, it's like you get up 15 minutes early and open up your Bible. He's like, oh, all right, I'll give you a little bit more favor today. Right? I mean, that's idiotic, you guys. That we could earn more favor? We stand in a position of grace. Do you understand what that means? The unending outpouring of the absolute acceptance and forgiveness and love of God. That's where you stand. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it by not earning it. Religion says work harder, try better. Grace says Jesus did it all. Rest in who he is and what he's done. Stop trying to impress God. And stop thinking that you're good enough to. Huh. How incredibly conceited is that? You really think you can impress God? You really think you can earn His favor? You're as good as Jesus? I don't think so. That is both arrogant and insulting. The message of grace is incredibly humbling. You can't do it. You're a cosmic traitor. That's what you are. That's what I am. In my own nature, I am an, I am, I'm a, rebel, a rebel against God, an offense against God. But in Christ, I am absolutely loved, absolutely accepted, absolutely cherished. I need to rest in Him. 
Because as I learn to, to, to rest in him, my heart will be trained to delight in him. As I'm forgiven by him, and that has its proper outworking in my heart, I will come to love him. I will come to see that he is, in fact, the very thing that I'm wanting. It will retrain my appetite away from the things that don't fulfill and to the thing that truly does. I'll come to see that all these other things that I've been going to are the appetizers. He's the meal. All these other things that I've been going toward are gifts. He's the giver of the good gift, the one that ultimately satisfies. See, grace forgives and grace transforms because it retrains our appetites for what is real. And this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of of His wisdom working itself out through the person and the work of His beloved Son. In fact, the verse tells us that all of this is making known to us the mystery of His will. It is making known to us the mystery of His will. Making known means that it's progressive. What does it mean by mystery? Um, sometimes when we think of mysteries, we think of things that are not like obvious, but if you're smart enough, you can figure it out, right? If it's a mystery, if I can just figure out the right key, if I can just be smart enough, then I can figure it out. That's not a biblical mystery. A, a biblical mystery is something that's impossible to figure out unless God shows it to you. And once God shows it to you, it makes perfect sense. So a biblical mystery is something that was hidden until the right time when God revealed it. And when He revealed it, it makes perfect sense, but nobody would have figured it out ahead of time. That's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was a biblical mystery. Nobody could have looked ahead and said, oh yeah, that's how God's going to solve the most crucial problem in the entire universe. He's going to send His Son and have Him crucified. But, but looking back, it makes sense. But here's the deal, you guys. Mysteries are things not just to be apprehended intellectually, they're things to be known experientially. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. This isn't just something that we need to understand in our heads. It is something that we need to learn how to experience in our lives. Making known to us the mystery of His will, what He's saying is that we are progressively experiencing more of the power of grace. It is, we're, we're knowing. How do you come to appreciate the wisdom of God? It's by experiencing that wisdom in your life. When you actually start tasting more freedom, when you actually start tasting more shalom in your life as a result of the grace of God, and you're like, it's, it's changing your appetites, and you're like, I used to think I needed that to survive, and I look at it now, and I'm like, I don't need that to survive. In fact, I'm not even sure I want it anymore. I'm free from that. You're actually going to start realizing and appreciating the wisdom of God. Why? Because you've experienced that wisdom as it has set you free. That's what it's talking about, this progressive sense that we come to appreciate the wisdom of God the love of God, the grace of God, as we experience more of it in our lives. See, the more we come to rest in the work of Christ, the more free we become. The more we simply stop working to impress God and just rest in the fact that Jesus impressed God for us, the more free we become. This is the mystery, this thing that was has now been revealed to us that is profoundly wise. Because we're really going to understand how grace works because we're experiencing it. We're tasting it. 
The verse goes on and it says, this is all according to his purpose that he set forth in Christ. This, this wisdom is all part of his purpose that he set forth in Christ. You know, Jesus was never God's plan B. He was always God's plan A. From eternity past, God planned to make his name great through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. He had determined and committed himself to laying down his life for our good and inviting us into a relationship of grace with him. This is all according to his purpose that he set forth in Christ. And what you need to realize is that this is his one and only plan. Not only is this his plan A, there is no plan B. There's no other plan. He says that this is ultimately a plan for the fullness of time. This wasn't just a plan, you know, to kind of get you started in your spiritual walk, and then we go down to the, the real other plan, which is you better get down to the hard business of obeying and performing and, and going to church and doing all the right things. This is it, man. This is the only plan he's got. And in fact, this is the only plan he's got to solve every problem in the universe. This is a plan for the fullness of the ages. What does that mean? When everything is said and done, when everything is brought to its consummation, this is still God's solution. Jesus is still the hero of the story. He is still the center of all things. In fact, it goes on and it says that it was his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That word unite, man, it's, it is true that the word means to take all these disparate things, all these things that are separated and unite them into one. But the word also means to sum up, to take all of these different things and sum them up in the person of Christ. Or in other words, it is, it is God's plan to restore everything in Christ. The shalom that we lost, our shalom with God, the peace that we have with others, the peace that we have with ourselves, it is God's plan ultimately to restore all things in heaven and on earth. In both the unseen and physical realm, all things will be summed up, will be restored to their proper balance in Christ. We're getting a glimpse of God's plan. God's ultimate plan is for Christ to be the center. For Him to be what He was in the beginning. The one who was worshipped. The one around whom we revolved. We weren't the center. We weren't the hero. It's not about us. It's about Him. He's the all-glorious one. The all-beautiful one. He will get His worship. He will get His glory. And we will get our joy because we were never created to occupy his seat. And as he is restored to the proper center, we get the benefit. This is God's plan. And this is God's one plan to address ultimately every problem and meet every need. You know, as a pastor, I meet with a lot of people. And I, and I sit across the table and I hear a lot of problems. And I've got like my little pastor bag, you know, metaphorically. I open it up. I got one tool. It's called the gospel. That's all I got. I'm kind of just showing my hand here. That's all I got. I sit down across from a young woman who was um, abused. All I got is the gospel, but it's all I need. I sit down across from a guy who, through his promiscuity, has ruined his own life. All I've got is the gospel, and it's all I need. I sit down from a guy who, is, who has devastated his life financially. All I've got is the gospel, and it's all I need. Now, there are other things. Obviously, I can help somebody learn how to budget. 
we can talk through, we can talk about biblical counseling, we can talk about working through those, those are all valuable and, and, and good things, but none of those ultimately get to the real heart of the issue. None of those get to the root of the pain or the root of the problem like the gospel. The gospel is not going to help you budget, but the gospel is going to help you manage your money. How? If I'm sitting down across from somebody who has destroyed their, their financial you know, well-being through bad choices, I, yeah, I mean, I can show you how to budget, but that's not the real issue. You need the gospel to set you free, right? You're, you're impulse buying. Why are, you, why are you spending money you don't have? Because you're desperately seeking an experience of the shalom of God in a way you can't get it. The gospel will set you free right? You're, you're desperately trying to save up money in your bank account and in your 401k because that's your sense of security. And you're so terrified of spending money, you're ruining the relationships you have around you. The gospel will set you free. It will speak to the deeper need. Why do you... God is your security. You are secure in the outpouring of the grace of God. The gospel is the only tool I have. It's the only tool I need because it's God's only tool to fix every problem we face. It ultimately speaks to the heart of every problem because ultimately our problems come from the fact that we are trying to get what only God can give from things that aren't God. And we're trying to make ourselves sit in a seat that we were never fitted to sit in and that is the center of all things. The gospel humbles us and breaks us and tells us that we're not adequate for that seat, but it also exalts us and lifts us up by telling us that we are more loved than we can dare hope. And we stand before God forgiven. We stand before God in a position of grace. We stand before God clothed in Christ. Absolute, unconditional never-ending love, acceptance, forgiveness. You guys, the very grace that forgives you is the very grace you need to be set free. And this is God's plan to do it because he's not just going to redeem us, he's going to restore us. And in that restoration, he will get his glory and we will get our joy. I'm going to put some uh, questions on the screen to, to lead us in a time of reflection. I'm going to ask you to pray and um, just let God speak to you in it. We're also going to take our offering. This is a way for us to partner together as the people of God um, in sacrifice. In response to God's generosity, we are generous because we want to see other people's lives change. That's what we do. We give um, so that the gospel can be advanced through this local church, and it's our privilege to partner together to do that. So we give joyfully and we give sacrificially. If you're a guest with us, um, please don't feel obligated to give. Uh, we do want you to give us that worship response card that's in your bulletin. We'd love to know you're here. We'd love to pray for you if you have prayer requests. Um, but for now, let me pray for us. We'll share communion in a moment. But let's pray and we'll go into our time of reflection. Father, we thank you that you are um, a generous God, that even that word generous doesn't adequately describe who you are, and what you do. When we think of generous, we think of giving our spare change. We think of giving some of our excess. Lord, you gave us your all. 
In your generosity, you gave us your best. You gave us your son who stood in our place as our substitute that we might be forgiven. Father, I pray that you will move our hearts to gratitude, that you will move our hearts to wonder and worship and devotion, that you will awaken in us genuine faith that simply responds and says to you, yes, thank you. 